This week in Arsenal, the Gunners quietly get the perfect result against Manchester City. We examine the run-ins for both teams. The Moises Caicedo saga continues, and Falaran Balogun threatens to create a massive headache in the summer. Welcome in to episode two of This Week in Arsenal. I am Sham, also known as Aaron Shamsey. You can follow me on Twitter at Gunner. And here with me is the man himself, Sash, whom you can find on Twitter at LT Arsenal. Sash, how you doing, man? How was your weekend? It was not the best weekend. I actually fell sick. I got a bit of a cold. The weather here in Berlin is not so good, and the flu is just spreading. So I was just tucked into my bed and following the transfer news, uh, but a lot better right now. Just before this podcast, I did a 15 minutes meditation session and I've become as calm as Ancelotti was when Madrid needed two goals in the Champions League uh, last season. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, basically what I've decided is that for the next 24 hours, or at least for the next 12 hours, I'm not going to open Twitter. I'm not going to open WhatsApp. I'm just going to live off social media for the next 12 hours because this transfer window is killing us, you know? All of us are looking for that dopamine to fill our brain with hoping that something would pop up and we're just getting let down at the moment. So I think let's try to spend our time more fruitfully for the next 12 hours and whatever's meant to be is meant to be. Yeah, yeah, no, um, I agree. I'm glad glad to hear that you're feeling better, by the way. Um, yeah, I mean, with the, with the transfer window, I feel like I've kind of settled into a rhythm where... You know, I don't I don't let myself get mad about most transfers because it's just not it's not helpful, right? And um, yeah, I think we'll we'll talk about the Caicedo situation um, later, and you know, there's also Fresneda going on in the background along with yep. with a few other things. But yeah, people are getting themselves really worked up about it, and um, luckily, I you know, you and I both have other things going on in life that take us off of Twitter. <laughs> for yeah. for a little while but yeah it's been crazy so um today we're going to talk about the man the, the fa cup match against manchester city on friday but you know that's not uh, it's been a few days and the match itself i don't think was um really that big of a deal sash i'm sure you agree so uh, we're going to touch on it for a little bit but then we're going to turn our attention to the run-in because you know that's that's starting to uh, to heat up, and you know the fixtures are are looming, and there's you know some some calculations to be made, and then we're going to talk about the Moises Caicedo situation and kind of go in depth and everything that's going ha- uh, that's going on over there, and then uh, I want to I want to end by touching on Florin Balogun because I think that's also setting up a really interesting scenario in the summer. But yeah. first things first. Um, we played Manchester City on Friday. We lost 1-0, and we're out of the FA Cup. Uh, and Manchester City continue on um, to... Have they have they done the draw for that yet? I don't, I don't think they have. Yeah, I'm not following that like I'm done with the competition <laughs> for this year. I'm not watching any FA Cup games. I'm just focusing on the league. <laughs> it's, it's really funny because I saw a couple tweets from United fans saying something to the effect of, you know... Uh, hey, Arsenal fans, like, are you guys still in the FA Cup? Ha ha ha. Like, after they beat Reading. Um, which, you know, good good for you that, you know, you're you're still chasing after, after the FA Cup like that. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a big part of our history. And I, I don't want to 
be disrespectful to the cup. I know there's um, a lot of people and, you know, at least some listeners who are, you know, really big fans of it, really, you know, view it as um, as a big piece of silverware. And I, I don't disagree with that, but I just think this season we have the opportunity to achieve something really special. And yeah. the FA Cup, uh, FA Cup might have gotten in the way of that. But um, we started a fairly changed side, right? We had six changes uh, from our previous match against United. So we... Uh, we started Turner, we started Tomiyasu, Holding, Tierney, um, Fabio Vieira, and uh, Trossard, Leandro Trossard, new signing. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, you know, still a fairly strong side. We played basically a full-strength city. I think they made two changes from their previous game, but Erling Holland started... Kevin De Bruyne started. Rodri was in there. John Stones played. Um, you know they they had they had some big players in there, so um, it was it was it was an interesting match because obviously we're we're competing for the Premier League and there was this big narrative behind it. But I found the match really interesting because you know I was I was worried that we were going to have trouble against them and it we really looked comfortable for for the time being. Um, or, you know, at least for the first half and then, you know, the second half, uh, City didn't take control, but, you know, they had a couple decisive moments and, um, yeah, the, uh, just to, you know, talk about, just rattle off some numbers again, you know, in terms of kind of painting a picture of how even it was, uh, 0.3 expected goals per each side. This is once again, coming from Canon stats, uh, 0.3 goals for each side. City had eight shots. We had five. Two shots on target each. Uh, they had fifty about fifty four percent possession. We actually had more of the field tilt. We had fifty four percent field tilt. Uh, more final third entries. Um, we were even on zone fourteen touches. We were even on deep touches. Um, you know, progressive passes. We actually out outdid them in that nineteen to sixteen. So. Um, yeah, it was it was it was just a lot more even than I expected it to be. And um, I guess I guess my first question, Sash, is you know what what did you uh, what did you make of how even it was? Because we we even you know we threatened them um, on multiple occasions. I think you know if we'd been maybe a little sharper on the day, we could have ended up winning it. Um, but you know what what do you make of the the result and? you know, those underlying numbers and just, you know, overall how we appeared in that match and, you know, how even it was. Does that give you encouragement moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was pleasantly surprised by the performance uh, on Friday. I was expecting City to, like, beat us 3-0 or 4-0 because we were not playing, like, I think, six first-team players, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but I was very impressed with how certain players stepped up. I thought Trossard was insane. He was by far our best player in the first half. I also felt Matt Turner really did well throughout the game. He was so calm and assured. And even Fabio Vieira to a lesser degree, but I think he showed that he does have certain qualities, especially in a game in which uh, we didn't dominate the ball as such and we did not work the ball into those pockets enough. I felt that he was really good in the few moments that he had. And even off the ball, he did a decent job for the team. So overall, I think the players that came in 
they really did a good job. They filled in really well for the players they replaced. Apart from, I guess, a few players that we can touch upon uh, as we go on in this podcast. But I think overall, it was a performance that we can be really proud of. And look, honestly, like I probably should not put out a tweet saying this because I'll get roasted. But I can tell this to you on the podcast. And <laughs> I, I would have preferred Arsenal losing this match over drawing the game and taking like a replay, you know. So I'm happy that we got it done with a respectable performance. And I think, honestly, City have more questions than answers at the end of the game. And we have more things to be positive about after the game. So I think it worked out well. I'm never happy when we lose. Arteta was not happy either. I don't want to throw the FA Cup either, you know. I love Aaron Ramsey, as you know, and he's like one of my favorite players. He's the king of the FA Cup and whatnot. But I think this season we have bigger fish to fry. And all in all, I was happy after Friday. I was not frustrated. I felt happy with that performance to go to Etihad and play the way we did. Not many teams will do that with their first team, let alone second team. So we can take a lot of positives from this match and we move forward. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think I think the main thing I learned from that match is we shouldn't be worried about City, you know. I mean, obviously, give them the respect that they've earned over the last decade, a decade or so, and they're still one of the best teams in the world. But I, you know, watching some of our, our B players, right, up against them and doing very well, you know, again, against a City team that didn't have that many changes, just two, right? Trossard uh, was just running that left flank, constantly creating problems. Um, holding, you know, I, I I have my opinion on holding, but I think, you know, he even though he got targeted by Erling Holland, he at least managed to keep him at bay for a half. Spot um, on. Yeah, you know, and um, that's... That's impressive in its own right. You know, Saliba came on and he and Gabriel absolutely nullified him in the second half. But fair play to Holding. You know, that's um, he he did the job he was asked to do. And um, you know, Fabio Vera I think held his own, uh, especially dealing with Rodri. I think he looked pretty good in that respect. Like you said, Matt Turner was was excellent. I think he's really unlucky for that goal that uh, Nathan Ake managed to slot away. Um, so yeah, you know, just just watching some of our depth pieces uh, perform, you know, good to excellently against City was really encouraging, and you know, it just kind of makes me think that if we have that full starting eleven, if we have you know Saka and Odegaard and Party and Jaka and Saliba and Gabriel and Ramsdale, you know, all starting together, and White White didn't play a single minute in this match, um, unlike the rest of the starting eleven and Zinchenko, and you know, if we have all those guys available. I love our odds against City when we, especially at the Emirates and, you know, maybe even at the Etihad, but um, that's not something I really imagined myself saying this time last year. So it's it's really encouraging in that respect. And I do think, you know, again, with all due respect to the FA Cup, um, that's, that's kind of the competition I grew up on in terms of watching us win things. But with all due respect to it, I think this might have been the perfect result for us in that we looked good, we played admirably, we didn't lose in a way that's going to make heads drop, that's going to dent the confidence too much. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's it's another 
group of fixtures that could hurt us being released from the schedule, so to speak. And it's more schedules piling up in what's going to be um, a ridiculously busy season for um, for City moving forward. And um, we'll we'll talk we'll talk more in a little bit about you know just how much of a struggle I anticipate City having. But yeah, you know I think that's gonna that's gonna be another string in our bow moving forward. And we did quite well. Um, I do want to talk about a couple aspects of this so first of all um samby samby played um i believe he got subbed on the second half uh for thomas party there was a bit of an injury concern there initially but it turns out it's just a rib issue uh got an mri for it expected to play this weekend against everton all good for party but samby played and he had a bit of a mixed performance uh, at least in the eyes of many people. But um, Sash, what did what did you think about Sammy's performance um, and and how he did? And I guess you know I don't want to have this conversation too many times because I don't want to beat up on the player. But what what are your general thoughts about Sammy in terms of his ability and in terms of you know perhaps his long term future at Arsenal? Well, I think for Sammy, like there's two elements to consider here. One is the reality and the other is the context, you know. In terms of the reality of the situation, yes, he's absolutely not good enough to be Arsenal's number six as of this moment. But there's also a context to consider here because he comes to Arsenal from Anderlecht. He's so inexperienced at the top level, never played like Champions League or anything like that. He comes in and he straight away is asked to do like the job Thomas Partey does, which is to play as the lone six in a, in like one of the best like possession-based teams in Europe, I think that's a little bit unrealistic to expect, not just from Sambi, but from any player, to be honest. And I think the issue with Sambi is that he probably is not good enough positionally at this moment in time. And the frustration from the fans' point of view is that he's not shown any sort of improvement since he first joined, which is fair. But I still think that this is a player that's hardly got any game time, you know. And I actually did like a brief outline of Lokonga's like appearances and starts for Arsenal. So when he first came to Arsenal, he plays like in a 4-2-3-1. He plays alongside Thomas Partey where he's given more freedom. In his first few months, I remember very well that the fans were so happy with his performances. They were like, oh, this guy is such a good talent and all of that. And suddenly he gets dropped away to Old Trafford. This is after we win against Newcastle uh, 2-0. This is in 2021. He gets benched the next game away to Old Trafford. I don't know why still. For El Neni. And we go on to lose that game. And after that, Granit Xhaka, who had an MCL that season, he comes back from injury. And now Lokonga's out of the team after a really good performance for one and a half months. He then comes back against Nottingham Forest in the FA Cup, January of 2022, when we get knocked out. And he's asked to partner Charlie Patino, who's making his first ever start in the top level. This is the context. And then after this, he does not play for three more months because Arsenal last season were not there in Europe and we only had the league and the Cups. And considering we were knocked out from the Cups, his role became a bit redundant in the squad. He comes back uh... in April against Palace and... When he comes back against Palace, he quite kind of impresses off the bench. Then he gets a couple of starts and he's asked to play the lone six role that Thomas Partey plays and he does not do it well enough. 
And I think fundamentally that he's he's a player who's lacked the continuity and the stage that Arsenal's project is in right now. I don't believe that we can give him that sort of continuity. And regarding his performance against City, he was really poor for the goal and in general looked a bit off positionally. I don't want to like obviously be too harsh on him beyond the point because he's a player that the club is looking to loan out and listen to offers for. So I think we just have to be calm and recognize the fact that we need another player there instead of like sticking it on Sambi. Yeah, 100%. Uh, sorry about me just randomly saying um back there. My Bluetooth <laughs> headphones randomly kicked on. So it, for a second, I thought you just cut out, even though I can still see like the volume bar going up and down. So I was trying to figure that out for a second. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I agree. I think, you know, you know, um, Sambi kind of... Sambi reminds me of a player that we would have signed you know, between 2008 and 2015, right? Um, Song-esque, right? Yeah, you know, he does remind me a lot of Alex Song. He's basically Alex Song without the aggression, right? You know, because <laughs> yeah. Song wasn't, like, the best... Uh, he wasn't, like, the most defensively aware player either, but he had the aggression to just go get the ball sometimes. Um, obviously, he had, he had a couple moments, but, you know... Yeah, he just reminds me of a guy who um, can sit deep, you know, ping the balls, play some really nice switches. Um, if we had anyone like Van Persie, you know, I'm 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 sure that would be great for Sampy. But but you're absolutely right in that there's there's a few things to consider with him where you know this isn't his natural position to begin with. I think this might be in terms of the recruitment that we've had. This might be one of the few mistakes we've made in which we've brought on a player to play in a position that he's he's really not suited to, at least in you know, in the English Premier League. And you know, just to so I think that's kind of the first problem, right? Where, you know, again, like you said, we're we're trying to make him or we're trying to expect him to play like party and it's just that's not in his bag. When Party came to Arsenal, he had trouble playing that position too. And Sambi maybe in our system is more of an eight. You know, uh, he looked pretty interesting as a left-sided eight earlier uh, this season and in preseason. But, you know, unfortunately for, for him, it's, you know, it's the case that Jacques is in front of him. Vieira's probably in front of him there. Smith Rowe. I, I could even see Trossard now being ahead of Sambi in the pecking order for that left eight position. And so it's just it's just a really tough spot for him to be in because, you know, we're out here chasing Caicedo because we can't trust Sambi to play six if uh, Thomas Party goes down, Mohamed Nani is suddenly made of glass. But, you know, he's he's a really talented technical player, and he still had some good moments against City. He had some lovely uh, switches and, you know, long balls to Saka. Um, you know, he strung things together really nicely, pretty, pretty secure on the ball for the most part. I know every once in a while he might lose it in the middle of the field. But, yeah, I just, I think... A lot of people have been very harsh on him by saying that he's not a good player at all and, uh, you know, he's not good enough to to play for us. I, I'm i not sure if that's true. I'm starting to wonder if, well, I'm starting to think it, you know, his, his future might not be here, but not because he's good, at, uh, not because he's not good enough, but because he just doesn't fit with us. And, you know, we're, we're asking him to do things that he's not really set up to do so um it'll be interesting to see what happens with him 
do you think we'll end up loaning him out at some point? Because I know Burnley is sniffing around, and I think there's there's a French team that bid for him. I want to say Rennes or Rennes. I'm not I'm not 100 sure though. It was Monaco actually, AS Monaco. Mm. I think they had an eight million bid done down a couple of. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think it is encouraging that we turned down a bid for him. Um, obviously, you know, there, we still do see something in him. But I, I think one other thing that's um, been very unhelpful for Sambi is kind of the change in our situation, right? Last season, we were we finished fifth. We were trying to get into the Champions League, and Sambi was the backup to Party and El Nenny. And, you know, that was kind of his role. And for a team that's trying to get into the Champions League, I think Sambi, you know, if you have to play him five to ten times a season as your number six, I think you can get away with that, especially with some of the other players that we have around him. But I, I think what's happened for him is because we're suddenly now competing for the title, you know, the standards have jumped up dramatically and the expectations have followed and Sambi hasn't really grown enough to um you know to match that so you know instead of having this time to you know train and learn from Arteta and slowly get better at whatever position he's being asked to play suddenly he has to play like the backup on a title winning team because that's what we need him to be um, in you know that's in a very short in a very short period of time that's what things have changed into so you know I think that's definitely been quite a big switch up for him and and yeah the expectations have just been um, dramatically raised for him so I I think a loan for him would be good but honestly I'm I wouldn't be surprised if we if we sold him this summer because you know I think um, Caicedo coming in if we do make that happen is probably going to be the nail in his coffin as a six. And then if we bring in Declan Rice, um, there's going to be another person in front of him at six. It's probably going to be another person in front of him at the left eight position because I personally think Rice might be the long-term replacement for Xhaka. So, yeah, it's um, it's a tough situation for him. But, um, so... We'll move on from, from that subject, but um, I think the next thing that we need to talk about is the run-in, right? So we've talked about how, you know, City seemed to seemed to kind of struggle a little bit against us at times, even, with, even though we were playing a slightly uh, weaker side against them. And I want to dig into that a little bit more. Have you sensed that there's something a little off about City this season? Yeah, I actually feel like there's like an energy lacking within the club, which used to be that before. Like, I don't know if that's what happens when you win uh, two back-to-back league titles or you win like three or four league titles in the last five years. Maybe you lose a bit of motivation. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but it very much seems for City, like their players, they're just used to winning the Premier League. And maybe, just maybe, they could have their hearts set out elsewhere. I also think that like they're a bit like one dimensional in some ways right now because it's not about Haaland but I think if you look at their wide players I don't see a, I don't see them having a wide player who's like who has an explosiveness 
let's say Sterling or Sane used to have, you know, I don't know if you get it, but like, I feel like Foden, Grealish and Maris, who's like right now 31, 32, I feel they're really good at keeping the ball, passing it around, cutting in, maybe beating one player or two players at most. But I don't see that explosive threat that they once used to have, like when they used to play Aguero, Sterling, Sane, front three. And I also think with the signing of Haaland, who you cannot make fun of because he has 25 goals, I think the way they're playing has changed. It's all tailored to him. And maybe they are experiencing like this season where they're trying to figure out how to play with him in the team. I'm not saying they're doing badly because of him, but I just think a lot of these factors compounded. And you could see the way Pep said that one team has that energy that we are lacking, you know. And that he actually, the word he used actually was fire. He said that we lack the fire of Arsenal like against Spurs in that first half. And that is something that I think we really have to use this season because we have not won the league since 2004. And I feel like the players, like we probably are more motivated to win it than City. City definitely have, I would not say a better starting eleven to be honest, because that's very disrespectful to a set of players who have achieved 50 points in 19 games. But I think City have more proven players. You know that they can react under pressure. You know, as you've seen in the past, that they've gone on this run of 15, 16 games where they just win continuously. If I'm not mistaken, in the 2018-19 season, I think the second half of the season, they won like 17 or 18 out of the last 19 games. Now, I don't see this Man City team doing that because every other away game, they keep dropping points. Like, I could see Man City getting to maybe something close to 90 points, but I, I cannot see them going beyond that, you know? And I think that there is, this represents a massive opportunity for us to try to capitalize on it because this kind of thing will not happen every season. No, um, I, I mean, I think, I, th- I think you're right. And, like, I think, um, I think what happens a lot in sports is if you continuously win if you are continuously on that team that wins championships, you know, the hunger starts to fade away a little bit. I think that's the hardest quality in all of professional sports to maintain, which is, you know, that hunger to, you know, even though you've done it already, the hunger to get back out there and compete again for, for titles and for championships as if they're your first one ever. Um, You know, you see it in some of the best athletes around, right? You look at, Tom Brady in the NFL, you look at Rafael Nadal in tennis, you look at, you know, Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo in um, in football, and you see these guys who, you know, win on a routine basis and still have this drive and this, this determination to, you know, keep going, to keep trying to win as many titles as they can until their body gives out on them. So I think, I think what's starting to happen a lot with City is you have players who are competing for, you know, their fifth Premier League, their fourth Premier League, and it's starting to feel not as important. You know, it's 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 starting to feel like um uh it, it honestly kind of strikes me as like the the first time you drive a car, right? The first couple of times you drive a car, you're like this is amazing. You know, I, I, I can't believe I'm doing this. I've dreamed of doing this my entire life. You you know, you love the freedom of it. Um, but then after a couple of years of driving, you hate it, 
and it's it's that's probably not the best metaphor but basically what i'm trying to say <laughs> is that yeah. you know once once you get that thing that you've dreamed of it feels amazing and then after that you're like the 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 motivation to do it again naturally drops for a lot of people so imagine if you're on your fourth or fifth championship right it's um it's it's really hard to maintain that motivation to um to go after it and i i sometimes find myself worrying that maybe this is the exact situation that they needed to be motivated where they have to chase after someone yep. and there were a couple you know there have been a couple indications of that in the last few weeks i'm i'm thinking of uh the spurs match recently where they went down 2-0 and we all thought the city had dropped more points <laughs> that we were about to be you know 80 yeah. percent favorites for for the premier league title and then they came back in the second half and they scored four goals and absolutely thrashed spurs but it's also um, spurs right it's also spurs it, they do stuff like this don't they they do they do and i i can imagine part of the team talk from pep probably was don't do this to spurs you can do this to anyone <laughs> else don't do it to these losers um but yeah and you know i think I also kind of wonder if um, taking Jesus and uh, and Zinchenko from them might have affected the team chemistry a little bit, um, especially Zinchenko. I feel like he definitely was a big part of that locker room, and you know maintained mm-hmm. um, maintained the good spirits and maintained the camaraderie in there. And yep. you even saw after the City match, right? You know, he was uh, he was hanging out. I think it was Kyle Walker and. Kevin De Bruyne, if I'm not mistaken, uh, or not, to, yeah. So he's hanging out with uh, a couple of the city players, and they're you know messing around like old friends. And I just, I wonder if maybe not having that presence in the locker room has affected them. You know, you, yeah. There's that whole situation with uh, Joao Cancelo right now, where he's suddenly going on loan to Bayern Munich, <clears throat> excuse me, for the rest of the season. And then I'm not, I'm not sure if you if you saw this, but right after that, there was a report saying that when Pep told him he wouldn't be starting against Arsenal in the FA Cup, he had a really negative reaction to that and had a, basically had it out with Guardiola. And Guardiola said, okay. Or, I mean, Cancelo threatened to leave. And then Guardiola said, okay, well, I don't care. If you want to leave, then leave. Um, <laughs> which has always been Guardiola's thing with his players, right? Where no, no player is bigger than the club. If you don't want to be there, then you don't have to be there and we'll get someone else is has always kind of been the vibe so it's it's just there's just little little sounds coming out of that camp right now that indicate that things aren't as rosy as as they were in the last few seasons so that that might play um play into the title challenge and so in that vein i think um let's let's look at you know the fixtures that we have coming up and kind of compare the run-ins for for us and city and kind of talk about how encouraging the, the the fixtures look, how many points... I think it's better to frame it in terms of how many points City need to overtake us yep. and just, you know, see how we feel about our odds at the end of it. So mm-hmm. our next few schedule, or Well, I mean, I'll just do all 19. Our remaining 19 fixtures are Everton away, Brentford home, City home, three Villa... Hmm? Three points for each of these three games. <laughs> 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 man if we if we beat city i will book a hotel in london 
for the for for the second weekend of May. Um, Villa away, Leicester away, Bournemouth home, Fulham away, Palace home, Leeds home, Liverpool away, West Ham away, Southampton home, City away, Chelsea home, Newcastle away, Brighton home, Forest away, Wolves home. Right. So that's us. And honestly, yep. you know those first several fixtures, you know between um, Everton and us traveling to Anfield, I I like our odds a lot at getting at least twenty points out of those fixtures. Yep. Right? Uh, we're playing we're playing a lot of teams in the in the bottom half of the table. City coming to the Emirates. I think I've hit a point now where. I think we can beat anybody at the Emirates. If you told me Prime Barcelona were playing us next weekend at the Emirates Stadium, I think we'd have a shot. Yep. And so, you know, how? I mean, how? How do you feel about that? About that? Um, that run of fixtures. I mean, do you see anything in there that's um, going to trip us up, or do you think that's that's um, how many point? How many games is that? Do you think that's twenty-seven points in the bag? You know something? I genuinely think, like, for the forget the first ten games because I think all of them are extremely winnable fixtures. But apart from that, like, I'm not really threatened by any fixture as such. Where I'm like, oh shit, this is going to be, we are not going to win this kind of fixture. You know, where in the past where we used to write off Liverpool away, City away as guaranteed else. I'm not going into the season with that kind of attitude because. We've already pulled out amazing victories away to Spurs and Chelsea. This Arsenal team is very different. And if there's one game that I'm a little bit scared of in terms of dropping points, it's Newcastle away because they're so solid defensively and St. James' Park is like a proper fortress. Um, If I'm not mistaken, I don't think they've lost a single game at home this season. And I think they lost just one game the whole season. So... I don't actually think we lose that game, but I think it will be a draw. But apart from that, I think the remaining 18 games, including City away, I think we can win it, you know? I think we can do it. But again, it's about keeping the players fit. If we're able to keep Thomas Partey and Bukayo Saka fit throughout the season, we win the league, in my opinion. I think we win it if we just keep these two players fit. Or if we sign a decent backup to Thomas Partey, which is why... um, I think we're going to go big on Caicedo, which we will, of course, discuss a bit later. But mm-hmm. I think it's looking good, man. It's looking it's looking really good. Touchwood, I know as Arsenal fans, it's hard to get your hopes up because historically, we've been let down. But it's looking good, isn't it? Like, I don't, I don't see the threat. Like, it's the Premier League. You can drop in any game. I get all of that. And we probably won't win 18 games. But just on paper, looking at the way we're playing this season... I think we should go into each of these games with the mindset of we are winning today, you know, apart from maybe Newcastle away, like I said. So as Arteta said, game by game, go game by game. Do not maybe look too far ahead. Focus on beating the next team. That's how we won 19 games already. Like the the games have just flown by, even though there's been the World Cup and whatnot. We're already at the halfway point of the season and... I can't believe it. 50 points. How the hell did we do that? Yeah, I mean, that's that's truly historic to hit 50 points in 19 matches. And I think that's... When I realized that we'd done that, I think that was kind of... It, it, it's weird, you know. I'm not... Um, I'm excited about the title charge, but I'm not worried, right? And that's... 
you know, it's probably <clears throat> famous last words, but um, <laughs> yeah, it just, I, I you, you just, it, just to be on that pace, it feels so um, confidence raising, right? And um, just to look at, I, I think the first half of the season has was the tougher fixture list for us because the number of massive games that we've had to play up until now, right? We've played Spurs twice, we've played United twice, we've um, we've played Newcastle, we've played Liverpool. Uh, whom who am I forgetting here? Have we played Chelsea? yet or do we have to play them twice no we, we just we have played... to play them at home we just have to play them at home basically yeah yeah so yeah i mean it's just it, i i look at i look at that second half of fixtures and you know i just feel really confident but like you said it's it's about keeping the team fit i think title challenges um across sports really kind of depend on how lucky you are in terms of player fitness so if we're able to do that i don't see any reason why we can't win the title this year i don't i don't know why i'm being so nervous about saying that out loud but um yeah to your point about winning away at city and and newcastle i as soon as you said newcastle away i was like i 100 agreed newcastle away for me right now is probably the scariest fixture in the premier league and then there are two others. There are two other away matches that I hate more than City away right now. And we've played both of them, thankfully. But uh, Spurs away, I don't like. Just because it always feels like something ridiculous is going to happen at Spurs. Also, you know, there's the the, the vibe there is just more malicious than anywhere else. Spurs, Spurs fans kind of have a history of attacking Arsenal fans um, in their home ground. Um, and then United. United's kind of another one of those situations where it just feels like we're going to lose the game or we're not going to win it. And it's it's not really going to be because something of our control. The referee is going to do something ridiculous or a United player is going to uh, make a red card challenge that goes overlooked. Um, but Newcastle. Newcastle is worrying because they're legitimately good. They're legitimately one of the best sides in the Premier League right now. They're so organized. They have such a tough defense to break down so yeah i mean I'm, I'm i'm right there with you in terms of that being the fixture that you look at in terms of thinking to yourself this is the biggest test of the season everything else fine i mean the city the city matches obviously two big tests as well you got to beat the champions or at least not let them beat you but that newcastle game if we if we go into it and we win it depending on how far ahead we are at that point if we go away to newcastle and we win that I think any remaining doubts about our capability of winning it all um, will vanish for me. But in in terms of we we've looked at our fixtures, but now I want to look at City's fixtures because it it offers another layer of encouragement for me, right? Um, so here's what they have uh, laying ahead, and I I do want to note they've played twenty matches and we've played nineteen, so you know they've already they have one less match with which the to beat us um so they have to get more points in fewer matches which is already a heavy ask but their next fixture is spurs away and then villa at home and then arsenal away forest away bournemouth away newcastle home palace away west ham home liverpool home southampton away leicester home brighton away 
Arsenal home, Fulham away, Leeds home, Everton away, Chelsea home, and then Brentford away on the final day of the season. So which matches in there, Sash, stand out to you as being potential pitfalls for City? Because I'm looking at this and there's about three or four that are coming to mind right now. Yeah, I think for City, like they struggle this season a lot away from home. So I think any decent team will give them problems. I think they could drop points uh, even against Newcastle when they play at the Etihad because Newcastle are so good defensively. Palace away, I can see them struggling. Southampton away, they already lost in the FA Cup. So I could still see them losing that. And I think two teams in this league which people don't speak about much, which are really hard fixtures, are Brighton away and Brentford away. And I'm so happy that Mikel Arteta's sensational Arsenal team passed both the tests, scoring seven goals in both those games and conceding just two. So I think City, they have to face this challenge and there's no way I can see them taking six points in both these games. I just cannot see it happening, you know. So I think they're going to struggle there. And they're also playing Everton towards the end of the season away from home. And I think Goodison Park, where the team is fighting for relegation, they turn into 2011 Barcelona. So I I won't be surprised if they get points off City as well. And of course, they have to face us twice, which I think will be difficult for them. Like, like I don't see us losing either of those two games. Again, if we have our players fit, I don't see us losing either game. So I think there are a lot of pitfalls for City and much uh, fewer for Arsenal. And you also have to consider the fact that most of City's remaining games are away from home. I think they have 18 games remaining out of which, if I'm not mistaken, 10 of them are away from home and only 8 of them uh, are at home. So that's going to, I think, make a huge difference. And for Arsenal, I think it's the other way around, if I'm not wrong. So we have, um, we have, uh, we have 19 games left and I think 10 or 11 are at home and the remaining are away from home. So we have that advantage and look, if the title race is going to get close, some of these details make a huge difference. But again, it's looking really good. It's looking really good. Yeah, I mean, there's based on the current form that we've seen from City and based on, you know, the the kind of negative vibe we've been hearing about in their camp and they seem to just be, you know, shedding shedding players from their squad and making thinner making it thinner and thinner you know spurs away i think could be a problem for them i again i like you said i feel confident about our odds against them in both matches they have to we have to play against them and then they have to play newcastle which i think is going to be difficult for them and then i don't think you can underestimate that brighton away fixture as a really tricky one for them and maybe even full them away right so they have a lot of really difficult matches to play and, you know, potential uh, points dropped in a variety of different um, variety of different matches here. And so, you know, I don't want to, I'm not going to sit here and say that City are going to get 35 of their next available 54 points, but I think it is really possible that they do drop, a, you know, a decent number and, Again, they only have 18 matches left, which means they only have 54 points remaining on the table. They have 45 right now. We have 50 with a game in hand. So I think I think they need probably 50 
to guarantee finishing above us, which means I can only drop four points. And I just, I have a hard time looking at this fixture list and seeing them dropping only four points. Uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think absolutely. I cannot see them going on a run like they did in 2018-19. So if they're to drop just four points in their next 18 games, they'll have to do what they did four years back with they had a really good team then, Aguero, Sane, Sterling, players in their prime. And I actually, you made a really interesting point about like the leadership issue there, like with Zinchenko leaving. You also have to consider that couple of seasons back, company left and last season, Fernandinho left, you know. So I don't know if, they, if they're the same City team, like who are the leaders? Like who, you look at City and the only proper leader that I think they have is like Ruben Diaz but apart from that like I, I don't see many Rodri to an extent but it's not like the old city side so I maybe mean, De Bruyne something yeah maybe De Bruyne to an extent yeah but even he like I don't know sometimes when the going gets tough even he sometimes can drift in and out of games and mm-hmm. I just think they lack something and if you look at City's documentary as well the most vocal players were guys like company, you know, in the dressing room. Like, even though he was injured a lot, he was such a good presence to have. So I'm quite intrigued to see actually, like, how they cope with this. And they also had the best young manager in the world as an assistant coach back then. That's not the case right now. So <laughs> I'm quite intrigued to see what happens if they do it. I just cannot see them doing it, you know. I cannot see them doing it. In fact, I think their form in the second half of the season will be slightly worse than the first half of the season. But I think they got 42 points in the first 19 games. So I, de- I see them doing something similar. 42 max, absolute max, I think 45 in the second half of the season. You also have to factor in that they're playing the Champions League and that is going to like add additional fixtures. And obviously their priorities is to win the Champions League because that's the one big black mark on Pep and City. So I, I can see them probably finishing the season with, this is the upper limit, like 87 points probably. Um, and I think 90 points should do it, man. I think it should do it. Which is, I yeah. think, about 13 wins. 13 wins and a draw from the remaining 19 games, which I think is doable the way we're going. But but yeah, game by game. Yeah, and that's and that's the thing, right? We're, we're just looking at their Premier League fixtures. But, you know, they have... You know, like we like we all know by now, they have more FA Cup games coming up. They might have to play mm-hmm. United. They might have to play Spurs to win that. And then they're in the Champions League, which seems to be their main focus right now because that's that's still the that's still the trophy that they haven't achieved. That's still the one that they look at as being as being special, as being you know that kind of forbidden fruit. So they're definitely focusing on that. And you know, right now they're they're um, they're upcoming. Um, fixtures and that would be against RB Leipzig which is not an easy task at all and so you know they have all this going on and you know I just I find it I I, I find it difficult to see this really thin squad they have excuse me this really thin squad they have making it that distance right because against us Leandro Trossard basically uh, ran John Stones's hamstring off his leg and you know I don't I don't think they have enough players really to to spread all those minutes around and make that work well. So, yeah, I mean, after talking about this, I, I honestly do feel 
even more confident in our odds. Obviously, we still have to go do it. And, you know, we still have to keep our own squad fit and, you know, make sure that our own key players are available. And if they can't be available, then we have to make sure that there's depth behind them and reliable cover. And to that end, we have obviously been chasing after one Moises Caicedo from Brighton. Uh, 21-year-old Ecuadorian midfielder. Uh, really, really talented Um I think Brighton only signed him for a few million pounds. And as as of this recording, our last bid, I believe, was um, 70 million pounds plus five in add-ons. Sounds like we're mulling over going back again. Uh, sounds like Brighton have kind of softened their stance from being um, adamant that he's not for sale to, you know, reports coming out saying they'd take 90 million and the most recent reports, reports in that regard have stated that 80 million might be enough to tempt Brighton into selling. So um, we'll see how the negotiations go. But uh, Sash, how do you feel about Moises Caicedo? Do you think do you think he's a good enough player to make a difference for us? And how do you see him fitting into the team? Yeah. So before I answer your question, I just violated my own rule of uh, not checking Twitter. And I just went on Twitter as we were speaking. And Arsenal are now in for Jorginho as for David Onstein and Fabrizio Romano. Uh, I don't know what to make of that. I, th- I guess the way he's Wait, being are... portrayed so far is an alternative to Caicedo, who's we're still in like negotiations. So we're still in the frame for Caicedo, but we're also looking at Jorginho uh, as a backup. But to answer your question, I really like Caicedo a lot. I think he's a good player complete player uh i think he's a he's a number six more of a number six than a number eight i think his best qualities are behind the ball but he's also like pretty good i guess to play as an eight uh but i don't know if he can be the box-to-box type player that arsenal want but i'm sure he can fill in multiple positions which is what is important and if shaka or party gets injured we need someone to fill in for either player like when Shaka went off against Wolves, we played Fabio Vieira, Odegaard with party behind both of them. But I think Caicedo gives us more options, you know, in terms of what we could do or a player like that. So I'm quite interested interested to see what happens. Like, I just like personally don't see it happening. I'll be extremely surprised if it leaves because uh, Brighton's uh, athletic correspondent, Andy Naylor, his name is, I think. Uh, he's been winding yeah. up a lot of Arsenal fans in the last few days. Um, and he's come out and put out a tweet today saying that even if Arsenal bid three times or four times or five times for the player, he's not leaving. So I don't know if this will happen. Um, and based off like the evidence of what I've just seen, seems like Jorginho's the backup to him. So very interesting uh, next 24 hours. I'm not happy about that development. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I don't know. It's, I think he'll be all right in the short term, but it's about whether he can also have utility beyond the next year. But I think as a backup, he's okay. It's fine. It's better than signing no one. So that's a starting point. Yeah. And, you know, Arteta was interested in him a couple of years back. But, man, it's, it, I don't like it for two reasons. One, I just, I don't think Jorginho 
provides anything like what Party can can do in that sixth position. Um, I mean, obviously he's better than our other options there, but yeah, yeah. I just I wanted some more dynamism, and signing a thirty-one-year-old Jorginho doesn't really do that for me. And then second, I just don't want to give any money to Chelsea right now. They've they've been throwing seven hundred million euros all over the place, spending irresponsibly, just begging for FFP to come knocking. I don't want to help them get out of that. I I want them to suffer. I want them to pay the consequences for what they're doing. But it but, probably uh, won't be much because Jorginho's contract actually expires in the summer, so he's basically in his last three or four months. So ideally, it should not be too much, as even considering his age and all that. But let's see what happens because I don't think Chelsea will want to lose him on a free. Yeah, and Arteta but, likes him, so I guess probably at the end of the day, like. No matter what our opinions are, I think at the end of the day, Arteta knows. And like, even in the past, like I was against Ramsdale. I was a bit skeptical about 50 million from Ben White. But I'm sure like he has a plan usually. And I think Arsenal, like we made a few mistakes 2020 initially with signings like Cedric, Mari, Willian. But since then, we've been pretty good. And if the club decides to do it, I think me personally, I will back the club on this one. You know, um, yeah, if, if we sign Jorginho, then I'll be disappointed, but fine. You know, he 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 does have experience winning, you know, some of the biggest prizes in football. He is, he's a good player. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to get that twisted, per se. But um, part of me kind of wonders if this is a tactic on our part to kind of show that we have alternatives, right? Because it sounds like Brighton are being very annoying... Um, yeah, which, which, which is you know kind of weird to me because Caicedo's come out and made this big, I honestly I'll come right and say disrespectful post on Twitter mm-hmm. and Instagram, right, saying you know thanks for everything Brighton, but I want to go and hey you know you can take the money that you get from me and reinvest it, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know he's he's done Legend. all this and. Yeah, no, I mean, it, by, by the way, the Arsenal brand stronger mm-hmm. than that's all than uh, almost than it's ever been before. We have we have players like Mudrik and Caicedo begging us basically on social media in front of everybody to come join. We still have Mudrik <laughs> liking our posts even after he joined Chelsea. Um, but yeah, I I I think this there's a chance that this could be us showing or sending a message to Brighton and saying, hey. You have a guy on your books right now who, yes, he's an important player for you in a season where you might be getting Europa League football if you play your cards right, but he's made it clear that he wants to leave, Uh, and he's come out in a supremely public way to say that. Um, It's something that, you know, fans aren't going to take kindly to. I'm sure it's, it's something that his teammates didn't appreciate either. And, you know, you just have to wonder what is he going to do if he doesn't get the move? How much of a trouble or how much of a pain in the ass is he going to be after that, you know? So yeah. if if you don't want to take 80 million pounds for him now and, you know, probably you sell him for less in the summer, we'll go get someone else and you deal with that. Yep, yep. That's yeah, that hopefully, yeah, that's hopefully the message we're sending. But if it's not and Jorginho's kind of... Well, I, I guess, you know, even if Jorginho's a backup option and Ornstein's found out about it and reported it, 
you know, that still kind of does send that message to Brighton. So we'll see. Okay. I mean, there's um, there's obviously some games being played here, but yeah. I mean, if if Arteta wants Jorginho at the end of the day, then, then we'll take him. But I like Moises Caicedo a lot, and he doesn't, if re- reportedly at least, he doesn't affect our pursuit of Declan Rice in the summer. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, if you have those two guys, I think our midfield's set for the next five years, at least. Um, Absolutely. And, yeah, and, you know, either, you know, Rice and Caicedo, both of them can play six, both of them can play eight. They're very good technical players. I think Caicedo a little bit more than Rice. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they both have great engines. I think Caicedo maybe needs to get a little, um, a little bit more built, a little bit, you know, physically stronger. Not necessarily in the tackle, but in holding the ball up. I've noticed that um, he gets knocked over a lot. But yeah, just excellent, excellent player. Really high ceiling. And and yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. Um, also, right, it's one quite more... interesting. Uh, sorry to cut you off there, but it's quite interesting that we're looking to so go so big, I think, on two like midfielders. We're looking to spend... I mean, assuming Caicedo goes through, which is very up in the air right now. The very fact we're willing to commit about 170 to 180 million on two players to strengthen the spine of the team tells you everything you need to know about how the board and Arteta see this rebuild. Because even if you look at the players who might leave in the summer, El Nini is going to leave, his contract expires. Lokonga, I surely see him uh, leaving the club as well. And in addition to these two, you have to recognize that Shaka and Party they are also entering their 30s. So you can see why they're trying to refresh the midfield a bit and like invest in it because Caicedo and Rice will, would stay for the long term. Which is one thing I'm a bit surprised about, actually, that we're linked with Jorginho because it would be adding another 30-plus-year-old midfielder, uh, which is okay in the short term, but maybe you have a problem in like a couple of years. So we'll just have to wait and see how this all pans out. Yeah, and... You know, I, I think um, I think with with Caicedo, if if he's the future of your midfield, if this guy's supposed to come in and replace Party in the long term, then you know I don't want I don't like doing this all the time, but you pay whatever it takes within reason, right? Um, anything I think short of ninety five million is <laughs> is gonna look fine in a few years if he comes to Arsenal and just absolutely balls out for us right and the the risks are very limited obviously he you know plays for plays for a team that you know does high pressing um very technically gifted players um you know kind of similar to how we play he is playing in the Premier League so there's no worries about an adaptation period he is 21 so there's resale value there. There's growth potential. And and also, you know, he's on reportedly just a few grand a week at Brighton. So, you know, it's not going to be a massive outlay in terms of the salary either. So I think all those things make it a pretty low-risk transfer, even if you do spend a lot of money on it. Um, and also, you have to yeah. recognize that guys like Enzo are going for $120 million and Bellingham is going to go for $140 plus and. Like in a year to two, it's going to look very less. I remember last January, that's 2021, uh, January. Oh no, was it 2022? January, we wanted to send Blahuch. Yeah, that was last January. 
uh, I remember that uh, Newcastle signed Bruno Guimaraes for like 50 million or something and Arsenal f- felt it was a bit too much but right now it's not looking so much and with the inflation in this market it's going to get really hard to find value in it and considering the circumstances Arsenal find themselves in competing for the league I think we should definitely look to pay up as much as we can uh, to get this done so I totally agree with you yeah but uh yeah we'll see we'll see what happens with that I'm still kind of praying that the Jorginho news is just a smoke screen at the very least but yeah we'll see how this all plays out I I personally still think that we do get Caicedo over the line it's just that we will probably have to pay more money than than we're thrilled with but you know if that's the difference between us finishing second and us finishing first and having a party successor for years to come i think i think that's more than worth it um last thing uh, we should turn to before we do the listener questions real quick is florin balgan right is storming his way through la liga right now played against psg yesterday had uh, a goal in the 96 minutes to tie everything up uh you know pr- got a pretty nice pass and uh you know basically just sprinted past um i think it was marquinhos and and sergio ramos playing that match exactly yeah 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 he uh sprinted past them rounded donnarumma again in the 96 minute tucked it home and got the draw for psg so currently in the league he has uh 12 goals and 2 assists in 20 appearances which i think is an excellent return. So i think i think is starting to beg the question of what does arsenal do with him when he comes back in the summer and you know he's going to want game time. He's making quite a name for himself. It sounds like we have a pretty expensive and busy summer lined up. So we're you know, we're definitely going to have to sell people in order to offset that outlay. I guess my first question is, do you think that Balogun and Enkedia can coexist in the same team? Or do you think that we could bring Balogun back and have him behind Enkedia and Jesus next season in the pecking order? It's actually going to be quite interesting, you know, because uh, firstly, Jesus can also play out wide. And I think Arsenal, they're pretty much set for the left wing. We have Martinelli there, we have Trossard there. and much as i want to fantasize about us signing mitoma it's i don't think that's going to happen because we have two left sided attackers already but the interesting thing is that we we don't have any backups to saka i think reese nelson will leave the club in the summer and i think hesus potentially could be a backup to saka i think he hesus if he's fit he probably starts but he's quite flexible to play uh, in different positions and if balogun impresses a lot in pre-season um it'll be quite interesting to see what happens because i know last podcast we spoke about us potentially selling balogun and tavares and what not but i think that if he continues in this fashion um he could perhaps get a chance in pre-season it'll be quite interesting to see what happens because arteta was really keen on keeping him even when it seemed like he was surely on his way out and i think that in terms of talent like i think he's probably the best one like in terms of the striking talent from halen 
out of his batch of like Tyrese, John Jules and Eddie and Balogun. I'm talking about purely talent. I think Balogun is up there. He plays with a bit, bit of that swagger as well. And you could see the composure he showed in the last kick of the game yesterday. And after scoring, going to the corner flag and doing the Andre celebration. He just has this aura about him, you know, that ice coldness about him. And he seems to be good at main, every aspect of the game, basically. Like, he finishes well. He holds the ball up really well. He's pretty physical, too. And I'm quite interested to see what happens to him next season. And I'll be very surprised if he's not given a look-in during preseason. Um, it's also interesting to see what Arsenal's plans in the market are because I think that will largely uh, influence what we want to do with Flo next season. If we're certain that we want to bring this marquee wide player in, it could be Musa Diaby, it could be Rafinha, it could be whoever... If we bring a wide player in, I don't see where the space is for Balogun. I can't see us having more than two players for each position. So, it's going to be interesting. And I think Arteta and, and Arsenal will approach this with a pretty open mind. And not simply look to cash in on a player who might actually be able to add a lot of value to us. Um, quite interested to see how you uh, see it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm in a similar boat because... I, I guess the first thing that I want to get out there is I don't think we live in a world where Gabriel Jesus, Eddie Nketiah, and Florin Balogun will all be happy being in the same pecking order for one position next year. So I've, you know, I've, I've had people criticize me for saying that it, it probably will be one of Nketiah or Balogun who stays. But the fact of the matter is, I think all of these strikers... I mean, Jesus is going to start if he stays on as a center forward. But, you know, I think we're hitting a point where Nketiah and Balogun have kind of made enough of a name for themselves that they're not going to be happy to play second fiddle to one another and, you know, have to compete to be second and third in the pecking order. Both of these guys are going to want to start for a team eventually. And, um, yeah, if we don't bring in you know, that marquee winger, and we move Jesus over to a wing, which, you know, then will kind of create its own set of problems because we have, you know, it's either going to be Jesus competing with Martinelli or it's going to be Jesus competing with Saka. But, yeah, I, I, I think we're just going to hit a point where we have to pick one of them and the other we have to cash in on. And it's really tough because Nketiah also has had a magnificent season so far. You know, again, like we mentioned last time, he... He's, he's taken over for Jesus, and he still has us on a 100-point pace with the way he's playing. And he's, you know, replicated that um, that role in our team so well. So it's, it's going to be really hard to pick between the two of them. I... It... Man, yeah, I, <laughs> I've been trying to decide who I'd pick out of the two of them. Because on one hand, you, you know what you're getting with Nketiah, right? He's... I think at this point it's safe to say he's Premier League proven. And, you know, part of me wants to go with him because that's, you know, that's that's the guy you know in terms of how he's going to do in these settings. But Balogun just has always struck me as being a player who has the higher ceiling, right? He's 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 kind of got it all, right? He's He's got great hold of play. He's fast. He's physical. Um, he's good on the ball. 
and you know he can score some pretty sensational goals. Um, you know, I still think we have yet to see Enkedia score from outside the the penalty box, and that's not necessarily a knock on Eddie, but it's more of just another thing that Balogun has in his bag. Balogun, I think, has the potential to be you know a truly elite center forward, and Enkedia might get there as well, but I, I just think it's less likely with him. So. So yeah, it's 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 going to be really tricky. But I guess the one thing I know is that, you know, with with the transfer market being as crazy as it is right now, if you have a Premier League team coming in for either one of these guys, I think you can pretty safely ask for at least fifty million for either of them. But yeah, I agree. I think they're both going to get an opportunity to, to to show what they can do in an Arsenal shirt in preseason next year, or I guess this year. Sorry, preseason next season and. Um, there's still a whole other half of the season to go, really. So we'll see who, um, you know, who has the better end into the year, and then we can go from there. But yeah, it's it's such a tricky decision, and um, I, you know, that's just kind of how the game goes sometimes, where you you can't keep all the good players. But I think it's it's very pride-inducing to see what I think are two of the best English strikers around right now after Harry Kane. Um, mm-hmm. you know, both being Arsenal players. Yeah, it's a good headache to have, isn't it? A hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think you'd, I think you'd rather have to choose between Enkedia and Balogun than have to choose between like Bentner and Shamach. You know, <laughs> um, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe we will figure out a way to keep them both in the squad. I just think it's, um, it's rather unlikely. But I think we'll leave it there for part one. And uh, we will be back with listener questions right after this break. And we're back with part two. All right. Uh, Like we've established before, in part two, we take listener questions and Sasha and I are just going to go back and forth reading them and giving our takes on each question. So, uh, Sash, why don't you start us off? Yeah, of course. So... I'll start off with Finn at BS7Prop on Twitter. He says, what do you think our transfer strategy in the summer will be? And how much will it depend on us winning the title or not? Look, I think this summer will be about quality over quantity. I can see Arsenal signing three really big names. I can see us signing a Declan Rice type of player, someone who plays in midfield, a couple of positions in midfield. I can see Arsenal looking to sign a right-back. We were really interested in Frasneda, if that's how you pronounce his name. It'll be interesting to see who we potentially target for that position, um, considering that Cedric has left, and I think Arteta will want two positions, uh, two players in each position, basically, and I think he will want two natural right-backs. Of course, Ben White is also there, but I think we will definitely make a move for a right-back. And then finally, I can see us adding a wide player. Now, another possibility is if we don't land a wide player that we want, could we go for someone like Victor Osimhen? Because I know this is a controversial take, but in my opinion, Victor Osimhen is on the level of Erling Haaland. I think they are on the same level. And it'll be interesting to see if Arsenal, they try to push and sign that incredible player the way City did. It'll be interesting to see, I think. So... I can see this summer being the highest ever spend in Arsenal history. 
I can see us doing 200 million because we're getting Champions League football. I think we'll make some decent sales. So after a lot of years, things are looking much, much better this summer in terms of incomings, outgoings. And personally, to answer the second part of your question and how much will it depend on us winning the title or not, I don't, I don't know if winning the title makes a massive difference. I think Champions League football and the project that we have, the way we are playing is a good enough brand to like attract talent. But surely it wouldn't harm us if we won the league and I'm sure that would also have its own novelty. And I guess outside of England especially, we would get more recognition because within England, people know how good we are. And you saw, you see the way Declan Rice speaks about Arsenal, for example, in his interviews in really glowing terms. But I think abroad, if Arsenal want that recognition, I don't know, from a league like Italy or Spain... Winning the league would send a huge statement, I think. And that'll be interesting to see. What are your thoughts, Sham? Yeah, I think I think whether or not we win the league this season, our, our summer transfer window is going to have the same objective, which is to get probably big-name players, but definitely high-quality players who can help us challenge for the league next season, right? So, you know, obviously Declan Rice is on the agenda for next summer. I I agree. I think we're going to go after a big forward. You know, um, we were kind of interested in Musa Diaby earlier this, this month. Rafael Liao is a name I've heard loosely talked about. Uh, yeah, there's, there's plenty of wide options there. But, I mean, I'm... Honestly, I do kind of agree on the Awesome thing. I just think... He's such an excellent forward. If if he's not on the level of Holland, he's probably the second best in the world still. And, you know, we have a guy like Jesus who is versatile enough where we can play him alongside Osman on the wings, and that will give us more quality out wide between Jesus and Saka and Martinelli. So, you know, I think it's a move that makes sense, but I think one way or another, we are going to get a pretty big name forward. So... Yeah, I I think two signings, like two big, like starting 11 worthy signings are going to be on the table for us this summer. And then we'll probably make, you know, one or two speculative smaller additions here and there, like your your Fabio Vieira type signings as well. But yeah, I'm I'm expecting something of a blockbuster summer. And yeah, I think. I think the only difference between what happens if we win the league and what happens if we don't is, you know, there's maybe an upper echelon of player that we're not going to entice next season if, for all, you know, I'm not going to say bottle, but if if things don't work out for us this this year, you know, that, that might put off one or two, you know, of the of the mm-hmm. the reach the reach players for us right so um yeah i think this i think that's going to be the, the the strategy for us this summer i think we're just going to go big i think we're we're nearing kind of the end game for arteta not i'm not saying he's going to leave anytime soon but i'm like for this project i think we're kind of nearing the end game the culmination of it where we've assembled a team that's capable of competing on all fronts and we're going to get the final couple pieces for that this summer. And, um, yeah. 
right, I'll uh, I'll read the next question, which is from Yembele at Verge59. And he asks, What do you make of Arsenal's approach during this window, knowing that we needed a wide forward and a center midfielder? Are we slow in larger deals like Mudrik and Caicedo, or cautious? I definitely think it's more of the cautious side. I, I, I think generally... Not just Arsenal fans, but football fans don't understand how negotiations work and the, the several different factors at play for when you are negotiating for a player. A lot of people just kind of view it as, oh, what's what's the price? I'm going to pay it, you know, as if we're talking about a grapefruit at the supermarket. And that's just not really how it works, right? The First of all, you know, you're kind of trying to establish a range of value when you make that first that first bid, right? So a lot of people get mad at us for bidding too low the first time around, but you have to send that message that because I'm bidding here, I'm only going to go so high, so keep that in mind. And, you know, there's obviously an opportunity cost for when we drop nine figures on a player, because what does that mean for our transfers down the line? Are we going to have enough money to do that? Are we going to be able to pay the increased salaries of guys like Saka and Martinelli and Saliba, if we're spending that money, you know, on a Mudrik, um, and, you know, bringing him in for basically a hundred million pounds and then paying him, you know, 150, 175 a week on top of that, um, there's that to consider. And then there's the general kind of message that you're putting out to, um, to teams you might negotiate with in the future, where, you know, if you pay a hundred million for a Mudrik, what happens if when you want a Rafael Leao? What happens if you want um, a Matoma? You know, people pay attention to how much you and others are spending on players, right? I mean, United paying a hundred million for Anthony this summer really screwed us over because you know Shakhtar Donetsk rightly looked at Mudrik and said. Well, this guy's better than Anthony, so we should ask for at least the same amount of money. Um, yeah, so I, I just think there's there's a lot of things to consider, and also, you know, even even if it's it, it's just not you you're affecting. You're affecting the whole market, right? Like I said with the Anthony comment, that's we're dealing with inflated prices for wide players simply because of what happened this summer, and because there's you know, more and more money being thrown around generally by Premier League teams. The prices have gone up, you know, seemingly every single transfer window. So, you know, I think we have valuations and we try to stick to them. And by sticking to them, we're slowly but surely kind of building a reputation for not being a club that's going to be bullied into paying something wild. And I think that's kind of the, you know, the tug of war that we're engaged in with Brighton right now, where you know, they know we really want this player, they know that El Nani is probably done for the season, and they know that we have money to spend, but, you know, kind of um, on the other end of that, we're trying to convey this idea that no player is worth, you know, insane amounts of money to us, and we are more than happy to walk away and find another player who, you know, at least comes close to the profile that we're looking for. So, it is frustrating at times to watch the likes of Chelsea and United throw their money around like it's nothing and, you know, get these big names and, and you know, see the pictures 
with them, you know, with the shirts on and see the Fabrizio Romano, here we go tweets. But I think the long game that we're playing in terms of our transfer strategy will pay dividends, dividends, sorry. And I think it's important to look at how City have conducted themselves in the transfer market, where they very rarely will pay more than 50 million for a player. And their highest, their their biggest signing, Jack Grealish for 100 million, look how that's worked out, you know. I think he's been a little bit better than people have made out, but if you're paying 100 million, that's, that's supposed to be a, a game-changing player, not a guy who comes off the bench as a change of pace for, you know, Foden and Mares. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think we're slow. I don't think Edu is incompetent. I just think we're, we're, we're playing, we're, we're conducting a strategy that requires a lot of patience and far more patience than a lot of, a lot of our fans have. And frankly, there's just a lot of nuance and negotiations that many of our fans fail to appreciate. But, uh, Sash, what do you think? I think you absolutely hit the nail on the head with every single thing you said, and I could not agree more. But if there's just one thing I would like to add, and this is purely from a fan point of view, it's mentally draining to get involved in these transfer sagas, you know? Like, once you're really invested in a player like Mudrik, like, you get linked to him, you see these encouraging reports that... Arsenal are confident of striking a deal and then you start studying the player, watching his comps, fantasizing about how he would be uh, in your team and then seeing other teams coming and hijacking, it's quite frustrating. And I think from Arsenal's point of view, they need to see how they can do this better, you know, because we've been linked to a lot of players that cost above 50 million, whether it's Lissandro Martinez, Rafinha, uh, you saw Mudrik and now Caicedo. And all these players, Vlahovic last uh, January. And we missed out on all these players for different reasons. But I think, I just think that there has to be a way we start getting these deals over the line. I'm not saying you can't compete without doing those big deals because we've obviously built something really good by keeping the spending for players within 50 million in the last couple of years. But I think Arsenal need to find something extra. I don't know what strategy they have to follow. Maybe it's keeping transfers really quiet, not le- not uh, making sh- like making sure that things don't leak to the media, and trying to like get the deals over the line through that. But I think personally that we have we are we are at the stage in our project now where we have to see at least two, three of these seventy million, eighty million deals. Sometimes. You just have to pay for the quality. You have to pay the premium. You have to pay what the market wants. And I get it. Arsenal have their valuations. They really run well now. I get all of this. But sometimes you have to like stretch a bit. And I think we will see that from Arsenal this summer with at least a couple of deals. Like Declan Rice, I can definitely see Arsenal going 80 to 100 for him because they really want him and they feel he will fit whatever they need as well. So... I think we will make that exception. It's just about getting it over the line, getting these deals over the line. And I'm quite confident that the club uh, is going to do just that. Uh, Coming now to the last question. Wait, can I just make one more point real quick? Yeah, of course, Uh, of course. Yeah, so I think think another thing to keep in mind with the Caicedo deal especially is that, you know, like you said, we want rice in the summer. So if we're spending $100 on Caicedo, you know, within the next two days... How's that going to impact our negotiations with West Ham in the summer 
or they look at January and they say, you spent $100 million, you spent $95 million on Caicedo. So the price no longer is $70 million for Declan Rice. We want 120 or something like that. Um, and yeah, I think, I think at the end of the day, in terms of what we can do to get negotiations over the line, I think there's, there's three things you can control in negotiations, and that's what you offer, how you offer it, and who you offer it to. And the first couple things I don't really have a problem with. You know, if if we're sticking to valuations and trying to play the smart long game, that's fine. If, you know, I don't think we're being particularly disrespectful, I think there's, I, I see this, this narrative going around that we're going behind clubs' backs and talking to their players beforehand. That's how all transfers work, basically. You have to make sure that you're going to be bidding for a player who wants to come in the first place. But I think the third thing is something that we can do better, where you know we can learn from our, our experiences and learn from you know the Mudrik situation and the Vlavic situation especially, where we're kind of just dealing with unserious clubs, and we're dealing with situations where there was a preferred buyer and then there was us, and it just felt like, you know, we were being used to drive the price up a little bit. So if we can learn from those situations and learn and learn to sniff them out a little bit, and maybe even start keeping a do not negotiate with list, um, you know, maybe we'll avoid more of these sagas. And you know, yeah, there is there is also something to be said about cutting out the leaks. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, could not agree more. Um, so on that note, let's go to the last question uh, from uh, Amit uh, Karajagi. You can find him on Twitter at Amit Karajagi. He says, if only one can be bought, Kaisido at 80 million now or Declan Rice in the summer at 90 to 100 mil, who would you go for? Oof, that's a really hard question because on one hand, you want to win the league title right now. But on the other hand, you don't want to miss out on a player like Declan Rice. But what I would say is that if you're able to get Caicedo now for 80 million, definitely go for that because he's available. If you know you're willing to pay 80 million for a really good player, go for it. Absolutely, team. Now, there's no guarantee. Tam caught some obscene price in the summer. So. There's no guarantee of that happening. So I think you in the transfer market, sometimes you can wait like the way we waited and got Gabriel Jesus in the summer for 45 million. But there's also the other flip side. Maybe we could have signed a striker in January and qualified for the Champions League. So I think there's always two sides to a story. And my personal preference is to always to try to focus on the next few months. And Arsenal have an amazing opportunity to win the league title. And... This, this kind of thing does not happen every season. So what my approach would be to bolster the squad to the best we can right now. And that is why I would go for Caicedo. Interested to know what you think. You know, I would... Let me, let me read the question one more time. Okay. You know, I think I would go for Declan Rice in the summer. And that's... That's a really tough decision to make, but I just think long-term, Declan Rice has a ceiling that can be trajectory-changing. 
And, you know, I, I, I think I think Declan Rice can legitimately become one of the best midfielders in the world. And, you know, Caicedo has a very similar ceiling. But at, at, at the end of the day, there's I think there's far less of a guarantee that he comes in and wins us the Premier League. I think if we sign Declan Rice next summer and we keep most of our current team intact, then we're right back in there competing for the Premier League next season. Um, but it's, you know, this, it, it's not by a landslide or anything. I do also think that, you know, bringing in Caicedo would be excellent for us and I think would make me feel even more confident about, about our odds of winning the Premier League. But, you know, I, um, I just think Declan Rice is that good. So I, I, I would, I would do 90 to hundred million for him this summer over, um, over Caicedo now. I'd, I'd be, I'd be happy if we signed like an Onana or even a, a Jorginho in in January, and then did Declan Rice in the summer over getting a Caicedo now. Yeah, I guess the only issue with something like that is that, I don't know, I feel like Onana, maybe his ceiling is not so high, and Jorginho, is he going to be good beyond the year? So, from my point of view, I want to sign good players at Arsenal. Even if we can't get Declan Rice in the summer, maybe there is someone else who's available who plays in that position and maybe Zubi Mendy for example uh, just as an example so I would prefer to have two really good players as opposed to having one top 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 player and one average player but I guess I guess that's just we just see it slightly differently it's, and I don't think Arsenal could go wrong with either approach so it'll be interesting to see what happens no no they're both excellent players but yeah I think I think that's a good point at which uh, at which to leave it. And um, you know, sorry we've uh, we've dragged on again a little bit, uh, our dear listeners. But uh, thank you for tuning in if you've made it this far. And uh, go ahead and you know leave us that five star review on Apple Podcasts. I will make sure this time that the episode uploads to Apple Podcasts. And uh, you know, subscribe to us on um, on Spotify. Follow the podcast on Twitter. Again, you can. You can follow Sasha at LT Arsenal. You can follow me at Dope Gooner. And uh, we look forward to coming back next week and hopefully chatting about a win away at Everton. But until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>